0: Well, if you've been in the church for a while, uh, any amount of time, you may have heard that uh, anecdotal story about the Sunday school teacher who was teaching his class, and and he was talking about a small furry creature that scurries through the treetops looking for nuts, and and wanted to make sure that his class was following him, just asked the students to make sure they understood, and so he asked the students what or who they thought he was talking about. A little boy in the back raised his hand, so the teacher pointed him him out, and the the young boy said, well, um, it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but the answer is probably Jesus. (laughs) Now, that that anecdotal humorous reality reveals something about the Christian life, doesn't it? On on the one hand, there is this kind of a, a, a shallow or a simple structure of understanding how Christianity works. And it's not so much based on really thinking through the implications of the gospel, uh, incorporating how the scriptures interact with our lives, but more or less the long kind of thing of, hey, as long as I just said Jesus is the answer, that's got to be right. Now, on one level, that, that's correct. But there is a whole substructure underneath that statement that without appreciating that, that the comment that Jesus is the answer can actually sound a little bit trite and and maybe even unhelpful. Now, on the other hand, Jesus is the answer, right? But, But what we mean by that is not that there's some kind of magic power embedded in the name or the word Jesus so that whenever you just say Jesus. There's this ripple effect of divine goodness going out into the cosmos. That's not what it's about. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts chapter 19 verse 13 to 16, there was exactly that situation. Some men felt like, hey, this Jesus seems to be grabbing traction, and they were dealing with the demoniac, and so they kind of just threw out the name Jesus like it was a magic talisman or some amulet, and the demoniac stops and looks at them and says, well, This Jesus, I certainly know, and Paul, I know, he's been preaching Jesus, but none of you I know, and the demoniac pounces on them. They were called the seven sons of Sceva, and the demoniac jumped on them, beat them up, took all their clothes off, and they left wounded and injured. My point is simply this, Jesus, that word, there's nothing inherently magical about it. So when we say Jesus is the answer, It's not because there's some mysticism behind it. It's because Scripture teaches that Jesus is the foundation and the pinnacle, that he is the prophet, priest, and king, that Jesus himself is the total focus of God's redemptive plan for humanity. So he's central to humanity. As a matter of fact, Jesus, you could say, is the archetype of what a human being actually should be. So when we say Jesus is the answer, that's the reason we say that. Now, I wouldn't be surprised at this point you are looking at the Bible in front of you and going, okay, wait a minute. Um, She just talked about children and parents, and maybe some parents brought their kids because you knew that passage, obey your parents is there, and I'm not talking about that. And you're going, what is going on? Well, I am going to talk about those relationships, and actually a lot of things we're going to talk about today, apply to any relationship, not just between children and parents and masters and bondservants and those kinds of things. And, and let me just say this real quick. Uh, Megan rightly used the word bondservant. And some of you may be looking in front of you, and he uses the word in verse 5, slave. And the translators realize that the problem with using that word is in an American culture, the only frame of reference we have to slavery is from 19th century America South and that's not the kind of slavery that took place in antiquity so some translations use the word bondservant to broaden that field now there was brutal and unfair and unjust slavery in antiquity don't get me wrong but there was also a very different mentality uh, oftentimes slaves had a better livelihood because they were guaranteed a place to sleep a, a food and they actually had professions like many of us do but they were kind of they were bonded in servitude to a master So the reason is they chose to use bondservant because there's more nuances to the word slave than what we tend to think of that. So I just want to make that clarification. Um, And now since that wasn't in my notes, I'm completely off balance of where my notes were. The point is this. Paul's talking about relationships in a particular context, And if we don't talk about relationships in the same context, Paul is talking about relationships, even parent, child, uh, master, servant, employer, employee, which is a close analog to that, we're not going to get the most out of this text. We're going to miss the point of this text. It is true that important elements of good relationships have loyalty, friendliness, practical things like returning phone calls, and and Dale Carnegie winning friends and influencing people. All those things are important. But if we're going to talk about what does Christianity say about relationships— We have got to go beyond those mere, virtuous, good, moral things because whether you're a Christian or not, we would agree that being loyal, being friendly, uh, simple things like returning phone calls, those things are important. But why we're opening God's Word is to say, what distinctly about Scripture and Christianity informs our relationships? And that's where I want us to camp today. Now, I would have loved to do a couple weeks on Parenthood, because that's so important. Scripture has a lot to say about parenthood, about employer-employee relationships, and maybe what we're going to do is sometime in the future, we'll do a series on these kinds of things, but in order to get the real point of what I think Paul's getting at, I want us to focus on what is the critical element that makes all relationships distinctly biblical, because you can go anywhere and hear about good qualities of leadership. I, I mentioned a book, Dale Carnegie. He has a great book on winning friends and having relationships. But it's not from a distinctly Christian perspective. So what is a distinctly Christian perspective? And that's this. What you're going to find in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, like we've actually been looking at since the middle of chapter 5, is the gospel reordering our relationships, not on earthly status or positions, But in truth and love with Christ as the central figure. You'll notice if you've been with us for a few weeks, all these relationships, uh, there's relationships of status and position. But Paul is not rooting any of these relationships in those things as the world does. He's rooting them distinctly in what I'm going to use a $10 word here for you a Christological focus. In other words, a focus of Christ and how he matters in our lives. Now, Do you remember last week, Jared gave a really helpful overview of Ephesians that makes this point. So behind me, you'll see these slides. Remember, as we've been studying Ephesians for four months, this is the kind of themes we see that then prove why Jesus is the answer. In chapter one, we were told we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, that we have new life in Christ. And then Paul rolled on after establishing this new life. As a result of this new life, there is a new humanity that we have in Christ that is available to all of us unlike any humanity we've had before. That new humanity gathers together in a new society. Do you remember what that new society is? The body, yes. The church, that is this new society. This new society that we learned about has new standards, right? It has new standards. And so you see in chapter four, all of a sudden, this usage of the word walk, 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 walk. See, in, in antiquity, they didn't walk for exercise like we do. They walked because that was life, and that's how you got from point A to point B. So the concept of walking proved this. It carried this idea of if you're going to get somewhere, you walk. So these new standards, walk in holiness, walk in purity, walk in light, walk in truth. And then finally, as a result of all these things, they create new relationships. So the book of Ephesians are all about this newness, but predominantly, notice the prepositional phrase, in Christ. Everything is in Christ. Christ, and now we've been wrapping up this last section. Of these new relationships, starting in uh, two weeks ago with Tim, we started been talking about more granular individual relationships. So Tim started us notice with me with, if you will, this next slide. Paul started talking to individuals. anybody who, individuals that's everybody. Understand the will and keep noticing these phrases, these prepositional phrases of the Lord. And they start talking about more specific relationships. Wives, submit as to the Lord. Husbands, love as Christ love. Children, obey in the Lord. Fathers, nurture in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey as you would Christ. Masters, be equitable. There is no partiality with the Lord. You notice Everything Paul has been writing about has about being this, this Christ being the central figure. He is the central figure of everything, of new life itself that then, that then cashes out in the way we relate one another in all our spheres, whether you're just an individual or maybe a husband or a wife or a master or a servant or a child. That includes everybody in this room. And Paul says the, thing, the distinguishing marker is that they have a distinctly Christ-centered focus that makes them different than any other kind of relationship out there. What makes our passage countercultural is not that it talks about traditional family structures and and, and work-employee relationships. What makes us countercultural is that this passage upends all of our notions about authority and submission and our relationships, not based on status or position, but in a Christ-centered perspective. That's what Ephesians 6, 1 through 9 is trying to get at. Now, he does that by talking about two broad groups of people, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about those in submission and then those who have authority. We're going to look at their temptations and the commands given to them. So that's how we're going to proceed. Let's look at uh, children and bondservants. And before we dive in earnest into the text, I'm going to ask the Lord to bless the teaching of his word. Father, we thank you. That Scripture is always more profound and robust than we anticipate. That it has much more to say about our lives than we first realize. That as we read these passages and think they're just talking about the way we get along, we find that they're talking about fundamental realities of how our lives need to be centered on Christ because that is the the meaning of our life. That's where we draw our life from. Spirit, would you help us to focus Lord, would you use me and my frail words put together to communicate these grand truths and that my brothers and sisters here would be edified and built up and that we as a church would be changed, being countercultural to the world, that we would not regard one another because of status or position, but in Christ. And we thank you for it in his name. Amen. So, children and bondservants is our first focus. The majority of our text is, is commands to them, so we'll probably spend a majority of our time talking about that. But what do these two share in common? What do children and bondservants share in common? What's that? They're under authority. Yes, they're both in positions of subordination and lower status. You know, in, in Greco-Roman culture, uh, life as a bondservant or a child... Was pretty tough, primarily because you were at the uh, will and whim of the father of the household. In Greco Roman culture, they had something called the patria potesta, that's Latin translated the power of the father. And this was ultimate and extended to all spheres of life, even to the point of death. Now, yeah, guys. I, I please. I don't want any woman calling me and saying, "Great." Now my husband's saying, "I'm implementing patria potestà." That's not the point. This was actually a cultural abuse that extended, as I said, to all areas of the household's life: children, young adults, whatever it might be, even to the point of death. Now I have for you behind me uh, uh, some text found from a letter, a common letter written to a wife or a husband. Hilarion is the husband to his wife Alice. Very many greetings, he writes. Know that we are still in Alexandria. Do not be anxious. I beg and entreat you, take care of the little one. And as soon as we receive our pay, I will send it to you. If by chance you bear a child, now it's not that he didn't realize his wife's pregnant. In those times, uh, infant mortality was very high. So if you actually bear this child, and here it is if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, cast it out. They had so much power over their household that they could determine whether or not a child lived or died. Now, don't get me wrong. This was not every Greco-Roman household. Actually, public opinion would limit this kind of behavior. But the very fact that we have papyri, which is what they would write, this common correspondence from husband to wife validates the fact that they did on occasion exercise their absolute right over their family. And if you were a father, you could tell your children what they could do, what they couldn't do, and they would obey you. You could tell them what to eat or not to eat, who to marry, if they should marry. All these things were in your privilege. And a child's status in that culture was just a little bit above a bondservant or a slave. And if you were a bondservant or a slave, your status was just a little bit above a good working tool. Now, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, says that bondservants are nothing more than animated tools, while tools were inanimate bondservants. That's how they looked at it. Now, just that few-minute overview of of Greco-Roman family structure is shocking to our modern ears, isn't it? Partly because we are America. We always root for the underdog. We, We always want to root for the person with the least power on the totem pole. But also because we go to a very different extreme when it comes to our children. We, we might lean too far the other direction. If, if Greco-Roman culture leaned too far to being harsh and denying their children individual rights and individuality, uh, we might go a little too far the other direction in giving our kids too many rights, too many freedoms, emphasizing their individuality too much. If you've been reading the news, you've heard certainly about helicopter parents, right? You've heard about helicopter parents. Maybe some of you are helicopter parents. I don't know. Uh, tiger moms, right? These are moms and dads, uh, helicopter parents or moms, who go to extreme length to insist and ensure that their children get all the privileges and rights. In extreme cases, I've heard of tiger moms. Or I've read articles of tiger moms. Uh, buying, uh, renting apartments down the street from their children's university so that they could have conversations with the professors on their child's behalf when necessary, right? That's an extreme example of, of the other side of Greco-Roman culture. Now, there was a time, maybe some of you remember it, in our own culture where if little Johnny misbehaved, somebody in the community would discipline little Johnny and Johnny's parents would be what? Appreciative of it. Now, Johnny's parents would file a lawsuit, right? We have gone too far the other direction. And what Paul is calling to the believers in Ephesus is to avoid the extreme of their culture, but the call to us is to avoid the extreme of our culture. We need to avoid devaluing them, but we also need to avoid idolizing children particularly, right? We need to, because by the way, If you either go to one extreme or the other, we're not going to love them well, are we? Now, we might think by idolizing them, we're actually better off than devaluing them, but not really. Not really. We need to treat our children, as uh, to keep in context of the passage, those under our authority with fairness and justice and, and love. And love is not always getting what you want, but giving what you need. So Paul calls on parents and masters to exercise mercy, nurture, and care for the good of the child or the bondservant, which, considering patria potesta, that was countercultural and shocking. But Paul also recognized the temptation of those who were in positions of submission, like children and bondservants, and calls them to obedience. He makes no two bits about it, that he calls them to obedience, and he grounds it in two things— Number one, the natural order, and secondly, God's divine economy. Paul calls them to obedience simply because, as you see here, children, obey your parents in the Lord. What comes next after that? For this is right. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Obedience is simply right. Where would culture be if everyone who was in a position of service decided not to do simply what was the right thing to do? It would fall apart. So Paul calls on them, and the natural order of things is, we who are in positions of submission, it is right to serve those who are in positions of authority because this is the right thing to do. But he also grounds it in God's divine economy. Look at verse 8 talking to the bondservants after he's calling them to obedience, knowing that whatever good anyone does, bondservant or not, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. In other words, God is no man's debtor. Have you ever been in a situation where you know the higher road to take? You feel the Lord urging you to do the right thing But there's a sense that even if you did the right thing, there would be no benefit. Did you ever get that experience? That you've been wronged, and even though you were the one that was wronged, you know that that the Lord's calling you to the right and higher road. Well, Paul is saying here, God is no man's debtor, and He will not be in your debt for your righteous deeds. He will repay. And sometimes parents aren't fair, right? Uh, Masters don't get it, but Paul says that's beside the point because ultimately you are not serving parents or your earthly masters. You are serving Christ. Notice the end of of verse 6. Let me just read verse 6. But Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God. From the heart, Paul saying, "Look, I know parents can be unfair, the, the, especially in Greco-Roman culture. They can overextend their authority. Masters can be brutal, but your service, your obedience, is not ultimately to them. You are not in chains to any man. You are in chains to Christ, and you need to obey because Christ Himself understands that this is the right way. To the, this is the, what is right." And you will be rewarded, but also because Christ himself showed such obedience in the midst of unfairness and showed such obedience to a people who never got it. Paul is saying, let Christ be your model. Christ understands what it's like to be obedient to something that seems and is so harsh. Recall John chapter 17 when Jesus was in the garden. He said, Father, if there's any other way that this cup can pass, let it pass. He said, no, there's no other way. Christ knows what it is to have a father make harsh demands of him because he knows ultimately that is good. Christ knows what it is to obey even in the midst of people who will never get it because that's exactly what he did. And Paul says, let him be your model. So if he's talking to parents, or excuse me, children and bond servants, those who are in submission, he now shifts to parents and masters. And what do parents and masters share in common? Yes, they are both in positions of authority and power. And, and, and what is the temptation when you have authority and power? It is the abuse and misuse of that authority and power. But notice Paul, he does not go against authority and power, which is where our culture would kind of go. Our culture is against institutions. Our culture is against authorities and powers. I mean, we were founded in revolting against authorities and powers and institutions, But Paul never goes there. The Bible never goes there. The Bible never sees authority and power as inherently evil. Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Bible sees authority and power as a means to be a blessing. The Bible never condones the abdication of authority. It commands the right use of it. See, and that's the difference Christianity is not about overthrowing social revolt and overthrowing the powers and authorities above us. As a matter of fact, Christianity is the impetus to make power and authority work the way it should. And that's what Paul is calling on these people in positions of authority and power parents and masters. Saying, parents, don't, don't, don't abuse your children, don't idolize your children. Rather, and here's the balance. Nurture them and love them. And what's that prepositional phrase right there in verse 4? Bring them up in the discipline and nurture or instruction of the Lord. That's the context. that, that, That phrase, of the Lord, defines the parental task. There are many things I can get wrong as a dad, and I get them wrong all the time. There's only one thing that I I can't get wrong, and I don't want to neglect, is that that bring my children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? So, I'll be honest, a little self-disclosure. My son can't throw a baseball. Fail on dad's part for not taking him out to throw the baseball, but I want him to understand the Lord, So if I've got to choose between him being a sports athlete and him understanding the gospel, I want to err on him understanding the gospel. Ideally, you want both. The point I'm making is that Paul says the context of parenting is in the Lord. And we always need to keep our eyes on that because we can get so distracted by so many other things. Extracurricular sports, uh, meaningful life experiences, a good education, all those are great. But if I supply all those to my children and don't give them a gospel legacy... I have failed in the one thing that Scripture is commanding me to do. And so Paul says, parents, don't abuse them because you're not going to give them the gospel when you abuse them, and don't idolize them because you're not going to give them the gospel when you idolize them, but bring them up in discipline and instruction in the things of the gospel, in the things of the Lord. Masters, he goes on, remember, interesting enough, what does he say to masters? Remember that you have a master. There's an important principle here. Masters, remember, you have a master, so treat your bondservants the way you want your master to treat you. Masters, you have a derivative authority. Do you realize that all authority is derivative? What do I mean by that? Derivative authority means that I don't have authority in and of myself. I have authority because I derive it from another source of authority. Does that make sense? All of us have derivative authority. None of us have final authority. right? So as a practical tip, I try never to say to my kids when I say to do something, they say, well, why should I? I try never to say, because Dad said so. (laughs) Because what am I teaching them at that point? Who's the ultimate authority? Dad. Now, you might think, well, what's wrong with that? I want my kids to think that. But how far different is that from patria uh, Patria Potesta? this is a different cultural context. When I tell my kids to do something, and if they challenge me, I understand that, but I want them to say, because it's right to honor me as God's representative in your life. Because you can disobey me, and the worst you get, at least when they were younger, is a spank or grounding, lose your cell phone, or whatever it might be. But if you disobey God, you lose your soul. And so in parenting, it's always got to be a use of my authority connected to who I get my authority from. All authority, Paul is saying here, masters, remember, you have a master. Your authority is derived from something else. So when we say there's an abuse of authority, right, so maybe it's a politician or an institution, what do we mean by that when we say that's an abuse of authority? What are we meaning by that expression? Unjust, unfair, yes. Anyone else? Unjust, unfair. Anyone else? Who said that? Yes, selfish. Was it selfish? Selfishness, yes. All these things unjust, unfair, selfish have in common a theme that the person or institution exercising authority is not consistent with the mandate that gave them the authority in the first place, isn't it? That's why you go, that's not why they were given authority. They're using it for themselves. That's not the reason they have authority. That's an abuse of it. All authority is derivative that way. All authority. Keep your finger in Ephesians. Go to John chapter 19. It's an interesting conversation on this topic of authority between Pontius Pilate and Jesus. So Pontius is is, uh, talking to Jesus and he's just getting frustrated because of of the way Jesus is interacting with him. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Uh, Let's go to back verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you. Oh, and does he say from the Roman magistrate, from Caesar? No. Jesus says, Unless it's been given to you, From above, Jesus is reinforcing. He's laying down what Paul wrote in Romans 13, that all authorities, whether they are Christian or not, derive their authority from God himself. So, Pilate, you'd have no authority over me unless it's been given to you, not from Caesar, not from Rome, not from a delegation, not from a vote, but from above, and here it is. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, See, Pilate was in danger of abusing his authority because he was compromising the use of his judicial power because the religious leaders who created more violence in abusing their authority as religious leaders in delivering Jesus to Pontius Pilate. So the religious leaders were violating their authority that was given to them by God to shepherd the people of Israel, and when the Messiah came, because it challenged their power base, they offered him up to be crucified, abusing their authority, and when it came to Pilate, Jesus says, you're guilty, but not as guilty as those others. Jesus was getting at this principle of a derivative authority, and we are responsible for how we steward it, and when we violate it, there's culpability on us. So as parents, as as employers, as masters, when we abuse that authority, we are culpable. When when, when Moses, in anger, spoke to the rock or, or commanded the rock to give water, and he struck it with his staff and water gushed out, he misrepresented God because of his anger. And God said, because of that misrepresentation, you don't go into the promised land. See, Moses was sick and tired of this congregation, always complaining. He says, you want water? You want water? And he whacks the rock in anger. And God says, you misrepresented me because my anger is not flippant and arbitrary. And you showed my anger to be that way. You misrepresented the authority, my authority, and now you will not go into the promised land. Uh, So often as a father, let me be autobiographical, uh, I have to go to my kids for forgiveness. Because I often, if if there's one sin I commit against my children, is I misrepresent their Heavenly Father. And it's usually not because I'm excessively nice, it's usually because of anger or frustration. Derivative authority is requires a stewardship from us. And authority. The Bible says authority is given both to parents and masters and governments. By and large, to nurture and care and ensure the flourishing of the people under authority. Sometimes that takes the form of corporal punishment. Sometimes that takes the form of retribution. We see that in Romans 13. But more often than not, it takes the form of care, of love, and nurturing, and patience. John 13 is a brilliant example of this. Jesus, starting in verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, some translations say Jesus knowing that he had all authority given to him and that he had come from God and was going back to God, what did he do? He rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, got on his knees and started to wash the stink, dirty feet of the disciples. You see, that was custom in that culture and usually the, the lowest one on the totem pole, the bondservant or the slave's job was to wash people's feet, and none of the disciples apparently did it. And Jesus, who had all authority given to him, knowing he was about to go back to the Father, the first thing he does is say, you guys totally misunderstand authority. He gets on his hands and feet and washes their feet. Peter gets it, gets convicted and says, no, Lord, not my feet. And Jesus says, you don't get it what I've done to you be an example to all others, that he uses authority for the benefit of those under authority. So we talked about children and bond servants. We talked about masters and parents. Let's talk about all of them right now. Children, parents, bond servants, masters, that's all of us, and I have two final points to make. First point is this. We are all, all of us in all these spheres. You are in all the relationships you have. You are never always the one in charge, nor are you ever always the one that's under charge. In some relationships, you are the one exercising authority and influence and power. In other relationships, you are the one submitting and serving and coming underneath. I am a father. And so that gives me a different role of authority and influence in some spheres of my life. I am a son that puts me underneath in other spheres of my life. I am a pastor. I'm also a congregate member. The same goes for all of you. We are always functioning in roles of authority and submission all the time. So the question isn't, how will I just exercise one or the other? The question is, how will I exercise both the authority and submission given to me in my life? And am I doing that well? Right? That's the first point. second point is this. Through the exercise of authority and submission, in both of those, we uniquely learn the character of God. Think about that. I think when we think of God, we typically think of the authority, that obviously He's God, but even in our exercise of submission, we are learning something about the character of God as much as we do when we're exercising authority. Jesus Christ as the Son, Son of God, second member of the Trinity, was obedient to the Father, Philippians 2 tells us, obedient to the point of death, right? Yet as the Master, Mark 10 tells us, he came and became the servant, So let's come full circle of why a Christ-centered focus is the key to not just parent-child, employer-employee relationships, but all relationships, is because all relationships have a certain level of authority and submission, give and take, back and forth, that are both really hard. And Jesus, having lived them both, did them perfectly well. And we need to have him as the example, him as the sustaining grace and the ability to strengthen us to exercise our authority in a way that's loving and leads to flourishing and exercise our submission that is good and beautiful and part of the natural order of things. Because Jesus did them both perfectly all throughout his life and ministry. And Paul is writing for us to do the same. You know, if if you are a follower, then you'll probably be tempted to think leading is easy, following is the hard part. If that's you, then then you need to keep your eye on this great image of the shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Because exercising authority requires a sacrificial love that costs you something. Now, if if you tend to be more of a um, of a leader than you are in a follower context. You are tempted to think that following is easy. It's leading and it's the hard part. In that case, you need to see the Son who submitted His will and went to the cross because that's this biblical concept of following that required such sacrificial trust and faith to be put in someone else. Either way, it requires us to keep our eye on Jesus Christ. Because we will always go to one extreme or the other. We will tend to lean towards this or that, and we need to have them both in all of our relationships. And it's having our eyes firmly fixed on Christ, as Paul wrote through all these relational passages, that will help us live these new relationships. And I can't think of a better way to to exercise kind of this authority submission dynamic than celebrating the Lord's Supper. That that you will see in a sense that there are all servers up here who are are kind of in a place of authority in a way because they're getting a chance to bless you, but you are going to bless them by taking of the elements and receiving and looking them in the eye. It is a wonderful time together. And if, if you're visiting with us, we have kind of what we call an open table. And what that means is that if you can take communion at your home church, you are welcome to celebrate with us. Uh, the only thing we ask is that if you are not a Christian and you're visiting, that you would just refrain and watch something that the church has done for 2,000 years. Uh, we're going to have servers up front here, and as usual, I want to let you know, we have a gluten-free alternative. And that'll be in the center aisle. If you have children who are not at the age where you're not very convinced if they are genuinely saved or not, just come on down and the servers, let them know they would love to pray a blessing on your children. If, your children, if you're comfortable with your children taking communion, they're wel- welcome to take. So, with that being said, I'd like to call our servers up here, and I'm going to pray for us, and let's enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you that well, Scripture is so rich. Uh, we've spent nearly 40 minutes unpacking these nine verses, and we could spend 40 more easily, God. But, Lord, we pray, more than just talking about that, that you would enable us to live it. Paul wrote clearly for our edification We ask, Spirit, that you would enliven and embed the truths of these words in our hearts, in our souls, that our lives would reflect these new relationships that Jesus made possible. We thank you in his name. Amen.